This week, we're going to be looking at the heart of faith. Abraham has been called righteous by God, and he has given these gifts of the covenant, the promises of nation, of land, of family and lineage. But this week, we're going to have a look at this interaction between God and Abraham that shows the heart that God wants his people to have. And it's a really different dynamic because it's God teaching and showing Abraham himself, this is what I want you to be like. You have been called righteous, now this is how we live. But before we get too far, let's pray. Thank you so much, God, that you are a good and gracious God. Thank you that you are merciful, and thank you that you hear our cries when we are suffering. Thank you, God, that you are holy and all that means and that you are consistent in your character and you are the same today, yesterday, and will be tomorrow. Thank you, God, that you are faithful and true and that you invite us into the salvation story. You want to include us and I pray that we will hear your heart this morning, that we will hear who you are and be encouraged and fall more in love with you today, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the Bible, the, the Bible's been through an amazing journey. Um, this is my travel Bible, so it has also been on a few journeys itself. But that's not the Bible I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Bible itself. In the early church, each of these books in the New Testament were individually circulated until they were finally compiled, put together, and added to the Old Testament to make what is now known as the Bible. Even then, it was in Latin, and there were people who fought diligently and hard and against organisations that didn't want to see progress to translate this into their native languages. People like House, Wycliffe, Luther, Tyndale, all these guys fought for the right to be able to read and understand the Bible in your own home. And the invention of the printing press in Gutenberg also helped translate this into, because you couldn't just have one Bible that was handwritten in the church. You could now have a Bible in your personal home. You could own a Bible for yourself because the printing press made the manufacturing of this so much easier. Even today, I have this so accessible that it's even an app on my phone. And at the touch of the screen, I can bring up three different translations and I can compare different words and do research. And beyond that, there's podcasts, there's small groups, there's church, there's, all, there's websites all explaining who God is and what the Bible means. All these different methods and ways that we can find out, all these different concepts that's leaning on 2,000 plus years of Christian thought that's helped establish our beliefs, help uh, detangle what it means to be a Christian and what it means for the Holy Trinity, what it means for Jesus to have humanity and divinity, what it means for salvation and baptisms. All these things, we've had all this history, all this knowledge, all this hard work and labor to lean on and glean from. I say all of this just to contextualize Abraham. Abraham didn't have the luxury of all this history. He didn't even have the luxury of a church or a small group. 
well, it was him and his wife, Sarah. That, that, that was it. That was his people. He didn't have the wealth of knowledge to show him who God was. He didn't have a friend or a small group to pray with and to encourage and to show him the way of God. And if someone had been down that journey before, to ask them for wisdom. In Genesis 11 and 12, it tells us that Abraham had lived in Ur and then Haran for 75 years before God had told him to go. That's a long time to be immersed in a different culture that has its own beliefs, that has its own rituals, that has its own gods, that might not even believe in the God that Abraham ended up following. 75 years to form and shape and solidify who he believes a God is and what a deity expects of the people. That's a long time. So when we're reading about the story of Abraham, we've got to remember that each step he has taken, and some of these steps, as we heard from Mike, I think one stint was 25 years, and the next one is about 13, that he is reforming, reshaping, and changing this perception of what it looks like to be in relationship with God, what, it, what God means and who he is in that relationship. And in this part of scripture that we're going to read today, we see that God doesn't leave him alone in this. God doesn't abandon him and leave him to figure it out for himself. And if he gets it wrong, oh, he's in trouble. But we see a God who comes and teaches Abraham his heart, shows him his way. And I think that's a perfect thing to remember as we enter into this scripture. So the scripture we are reading today is from Genesis chapter 18. And from chapter uh, verse 16, we will read, Then the men set out from there, and they looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of earth shall be blessed by him? No, for I have surely chosen him, that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what is promised. So this is after dinner. God and two angels have arrived and visited with Sarah and Abraham and reinstilled the promises given to them and affirmed to Sarah that she would have a son a year later. And I loved how casually when I was typing my notes, I wrote down, God visited Abraham in human form and just kind of kept going. When you actually think about it, it is incredible to think that we have a God who will go to that length to be understood. So here they are. They're walking off after the meal. They're walking off after this day. And God asks, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? No. And why? Because he knows that Abraham will be a great, great and mighty nation. And he wants Abraham's nation not only to be a great and mighty nation, but a nation that knows the heart of God, that is able to act in righteousness as God has gifted Abraham his righteousness, that they are able to instruct their children and their children's children and their households how it is to keep the ways of the Lord, what the ways of the Lord actually looks like. 
And remember, this is before Moses and the laws. So this is before there are any laws. This is just how to follow God, how to do life in God. And it is God taking it upon himself to show Abraham who he is. God knows where Abraham has come from. He knows all the baggage he has. But he also knows where Abraham is going and the nation that will eventually grow from him. But the important thing for God is that Abraham is known by God. That God is known by Abraham and his children and his children's children for generations to the nations of the earth. God wants to be known and he's willing to show himself to Abraham so in turn the people of God would know God's character and display that character for themselves. As God is a good and just and compassionate God, so he wants his people to be. Now, we can know a lot about God. Like I said, we've got history of books that could tell us about God and we could know things and understand things. Abraham could have known God in a way that kept him at arm's length from God. But that wasn't the goal. God didn't want a knowledge of. I know of God. He didn't want an arm length knowledge. He didn't want it to remain an intellectual exercise. God came to Abraham in a form that was able to be understood and so God was better understood, so he could be known. Known as a child knows their good parent and how a parent knows their child. God is not just revealing his plans to Abraham. In this case, he is also revealing himself. God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, he wants to be relationally known. And that isn't just for Abraham back in the day, but it's also for us. The methods might have changed, but it is God's heart that's still seeking us out. God wants to reveal himself to us, his character to us so vividly that Abraham is able to share with next generations who God is, to instruct them, to look like what it means to live in a relational covenant with God and each generation can tell the story to the next generation and so on and so forth. So that even in the 21st century, we still read this story and see who God is and what his character is like and what it means to be a people of God. God is speaking not only to Abraham in this instance, but he's also speaking to us. This, the just and loving God, he wants to be known by his children. And if we continue to keep this in mind for the rest of the reading, it helps us understand what's going on because it gets a little weird. We read, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great as their sins so grievous that I will go down and see what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So we remember, God is revealing himself. He's inviting Abraham to know him, to know his character, so Abraham can tell and instruct others. So this is an interactive lesson from a loving parent who's vocalizing their thoughts to include the child in their process. He's not unsure what he's going to do. He's showing the child and bringing the child along and instructing them at the same time. 
this is how I process, this is how I work, this is my heart, and this is how I do things. We do this with our kids today. Oh, am I going to take a step here? No! And you go somewhere else. This is the same idea. It's not God instructing him in a manual kind of way. This is God instructing him in a loving kind of way. And God tells Abraham of the outcry he has heard. He's revealing himself as a just judge. The outcries of the others who have been or who are being oppressed, wronged and harmed, and in his righteousness and in his love and in his compassion, he cannot turn a blind ear, a blind ear, a deaf ear to those cries. <laughs> he, won't, he, he won't turn a blind eye either. But he is there and he hears the cries of the people who are being oppressed. He cannot stand by and let atrocities continue. And even in this, we see that because God is a loving God, because he cares for the humans of the earth, there's also judgment. He has heard the outcry. He's listened. He's heard and he will act. He is a just judge who can't say yes to sin. But he's also a just judge who does not take judgment lightly and will take the time to examine the situation. There's actually no indication in the Bible of how long these outcries have been going on for. He is slow, as we would call slow, but he, he calls it patient and loving. He is a just God who takes judgment seriously. Not only does God... So from... Verse 22, the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before God. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? So in this scene, the two angels have now left, and it is just Abraham and God. Abraham presents himself to God. And there's two different things that are simultaneously happening in, in this situation. First... This is the picture of the throne room. God is sitting on his throne proclaiming judgment and he is coming before God to beg for the lives of the others. He is standing in the place the priests later on in the um, tradition, uh, the Jewish tradition, who would come before God in the temple and offer sin sacrifices and beg for the mercy of God for the sins of all the nation. This is him coming before and becoming the priest before God for the benefit of others. But this is also a moment between a father and child and that parent moment that clears the room and lets the space and the room for the child to express themselves, to verbalise their concerns, to ask for questions, to make demands in this free way. And God being God, I can't help but think it's both of these happening at the same time. And I love that it is God inviting Abraham into the situation. 
He wants Abraham to be involved. He wants to show him, not to just tell him like he's a pawn, this is what I'm going to do, the end, but he's inviting Abraham to come into the salvation story, to be a part of the story, and to see what this means to do life together. We are not pawns. We are not spectators in our faith. We're not asked to be. And in this, it's really clear picture of, yes, there's God's sovereignty and he will have his way, but there's also a responsibility for us to be faithful and actionable believers who walk out their faith doing what we can. This does not negate our responsibility to pray. This actually encourages and furthers the need for us to pray because God wants to involve us in it. God wants to bring us into the salvation story. And we have the ability to go before the throne room of God and petition for our families, for our cities, for our nations, for all those across the world who are being persecuted at the moment, that God's word may spread and his love will be known to all the generations. We can pray, we can seek God, we can be honest with God, and God wants us to be involved in the salvation story. Now, the type of prayer that Abraham is involved here is called intercessory prayer. It's a prayer for others. It is a prayer before God, praying for a change, praying for something new, praying that God would move and lives would be changed. He wants us to be involved. He wants us to love and care because he is a loving and caring God. And I can just imagine God standing there listening to the prayers of Abraham because this conversation is a prayer. That's what prayer is. It's a conversation with God, both listening and talking and being still and waiting. And I can just imagine Abraham's there praying for the righteous people in Sodom. He God hears Abraham telling himself about his own righteousness and his character. And I I can only imagine that God is standing there proud. You are learning me. You are learning my ways. You are hearing my heart. And he's also encouraged that Abraham is concerned for the others, but also that he's bold enough to come, trusting enough, knows the character of God enough to even ask. What would have your reaction been to hearing the judgment of God? Would you have run off? gone, oh, that's happening? All right, I've got to go. I've got to go tell so-and-so. I've got to tell Betty and Sue and their kids, and I've got, to, I've got to figure this out quick, get on the phone, tell everyone, clear out of Sodom, it's about to blow up. Not in a good way. He doesn't do that, nor does he just stand by, stick his hands in his pockets. I don't know. Every, every robe needs pockets. That's my opinion. Stand there with his hands in his pockets and go, That's your decision, Lord, no worries. Would you have done that? Yes, God, no worries. Okay. Would you have yelled at God for being unfair? Abraham. Abraham heard the declaration of God, didn't go running towards the two angels to tackle them and stop them. He didn't jump on a horse and go and tell and tell his nephew who lived in Sodom about what was going to happen. He stood before God 
and he talked, he prayed for their salvation because he knew salvation is not found in his own efforts. It's not earned. It is gifted by God. And it was only God who was able to pronounce the judgment. And it's only God for the righteous who would result in grace in the city. Abraham knew he was in the right place, the place before God to petition for these people. And the Lord said, If I find 50 people, 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare this place for their sake. Abraham appealed to the righteousness of God because he is righteous. And God said, Yes. And it is amazing because there's so many times when we compare the God of the Old Testament to the God of the New as if they're two different gods. And the God of the Old Testament, he just loves smiting stuff, really. He just enjoys, gets a kick out of blowing things up, which kind of sounds like fun, but it's not true. We see here that what God really enjoys is leading with grace. What we really see is God cannot tolerate sin, but if there's an opportunity to show grace and mercy, he's going to take it. It's the same God. It's the same God who rather show love and mercy but cannot ignore justice and righteousness either. They are intertwined and cannot be separated. God is love. Abraham speaks again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to you, Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? And then God says, if I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. How great is this? Abraham knows he is just a mere mortal, asking the God of all to engage with him. But I think the fact that God is standing there is more of a reflection that it is God who is encouraging Abraham to persevere, to keep asking, to get more bold, to get more involved with the story to know and find out what God would do, to know that God listens to the prayers of his people. God is standing before Abraham as a parent waiting for their child to build up their encouragement, to ask a little bit more. That extra scoop of ice cream, you can ask. Come on, you can do it. To ask to keep going, try the limits, challenge their own perceptions, God is standing there to be experienced firsthand and to demonstrate his character, to show the heart to Abraham, to show his heart to us. But we also see this relationship isn't a casual thing. Abraham knows that he is just a human before God. He is but dust and ashes. But for years, he has been learning and experiencing about God and his justice, his grace, his love. He's been learning what faith in God looks like. And while God might not do things when and how we would like him to do them, Abraham knows that he is able to come before God to pray and ask with faith. He stands before God, both learning and knowing God, and asks for the number to be reduced to 45. And God agrees. And God is still standing there. And God is still waiting. 
Now, Abraham has family down in Sodom. Lot, his nephew, and his family are down there. I don't know whether Abraham was quickly counting the numbers in his head, trying to figure out how many were in Lot's family. We don't know. But he would have been conscious that there was a t- that was the town that Lot was residing in. And God is still waiting. There is still that invitation for more dialogue, for Abraham to seek God further, to intercede for the righteous in the city of Sodom further. This is God encouraging Abraham to stir up his faith and love for that city a little bit more, to be more audacious and persistent in his requests. And Abraham, he asks. He asks for 40. He then asks for 30. He then asks for 20. All the way down to 10 righteous people. And each time, God agrees. God's heart is to save, to extend grace. It is so very present in his righteous justice that they cannot be separated. God is a good, good God who cannot tolerate sin and loves mercy. We will see the extent that God himself will go for love when he sent his only son to the earth to be the righteousness that we couldn't be, to wash away all the sin and bring us into a relationship with God. God himself took that upon himself for us. God couldn't ignore justice, but he led with love as well. This is the same God who is asking us to have faith in him, who is wanting to show himself to us. There's many different suggestions on why Abraham stopped at 10. Possibly his own faith could only go that far. Maybe that was as far God was willing willing him to go. Maybe that's as far as Abraham was willing to go. Maybe he thought there would be at least 10. We don't know why. There's lots of speculation, but we're not sure for certain. But after 10, God left and Abraham went home. And even in this act of going home, there's faith in that. He knows God is faithful to his word. He knows God is a just God. And if there is a chance of repentance, if there is a chance of righteousness, God would extend grace. And God is not hasty in his judgments. So Abraham could go home. In this passage, God encourages Abraham to pray for and care about the city. Abraham saw the righteousness and the mercy of God and found he could come before God with his prayers, with his requests, and God invited him into that space. God wanted him to see, wanted to tell Abraham of that plan, wanted to show his heart to Abraham so he could know how to pray. Later on, the nation of Israel would have people who were prophets and priests. Prophets were the one that God spoke to to reveal the heart of God, to warn, to correct, to call for repentance, to tell the people of the things that were going to happen. And the priests, like we mentioned before, were the ones who would come before God, praying for the sins of the nation, to burn offerings, to wash the sins of the nation away, and to pray to God for the people. In this, Abraham is both fulfilling both roles. He is both prophet and priest. Tongue twister. Before God, he is being shown the heart of God and he is petitioning and praying and interceding for the people. 
Even today, this is the same God we worship. And as believers, we are called to be a priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9 describes a believer as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of him who calls us out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is the role he's asking us to play today. Not even play, be involved and included with him. We are all priests. It doesn't matter if this is your first day as a Christian or you've been a Christian for 260 years. It doesn't matter if you didn't graduate high school or you've got PhDs lining your wall. We're all part of the priesthood. We all have the ability to come before God and to pray, to seek God, to ask for, God, for those around us as well. He wants us to pray. He wants us to have a heart for the world around us, the cities we live in and know of, to pray for the salvation for the nations. And every single revival throughout history has had one thing in common. It has started with prayer. It might have been a small group. It might have been for years. But it has been fervent, consistent prayer for that city for that nation, some cases. A few weeks ago, we heard from Open Doors about God still working through his people in some really terrible and scary situations. And they know the love of God, but they still have a heart that wants to share that love of God to other people. So they stay, they pray, they work hard where they can, and they are involved with the salvation story God has put them on. It's amazing that it's not entirely up to us, but God wants us involved. It's, now, it's both our responsibility, but not our responsibility as well. God wants to include us. He wants us to be involved in it. He wants us to pray, to breathe the priesthood that we actually are and realize that we are. People involved with the story of God. So God wants us to know him. God wants us to live a life with him and invites us in. And God wants us to pray. Now, 10 righteous people were nowhere to be found in Sodom and the town was destroyed. Abraham continued living in the faith with God and we become the nation of Israel. And centuries later, that nation would see the birth of Jesus. Jesus, who was perfect, who was righteous, free from all sin. Jesus, for his whole life, was the Son of God. And while only one, Jesus, the Son of God, in his perfection and righteousness, was able to be that righteousness and save those who come before him and accept him as their Lord and Saviour. Though one, he was able to do what others have not been able to do because he was God. He was the perfect one who was able to cover our sins by taking our sins that I deserve to bear the punishment for, but he took that punishment for me. And he gave me his righteousness. For any of those who believe in Jesus, he gave us his righteousness. We are gifted righteousness as Abraham was gifted righteousness. And we're invited to the story as well. 
Jesus, the Son of God, demonstrates the love of God to all people and the invitation to come and live a life with Him. Life of faith that places our trust in God before anything else. Jesus' righteousness is freely given to anyone who would have it. Anyone who would say yes to a relationship with God, to living in a place where God they trust before anything else. And as we come to a close, two things. But first, I want to extend an invitation that God has been calling out for millennia to come and know Him, to trust in Him and share a life with Him. And if you are here today and you want to enter into this relationship with God, in a moment, I'm going to lead the whole church in a prayer. And I want all of us to repeat these words. But if you're saying this for your first time, please know that we appreciate and love you. And afterwards, if you find one of the pastors or someone with a black shirt, they can help you on the next, what this looks like, if you have any questions. So all together, may we bow our heads and repeat after me. Thank you, God, for your love and mercy. I repent from living my own way. I come to you and ask you to be my God. I believe Jesus in his death and resurrection brings me life. I ask God for the Holy Spirit to come and teach me your heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God is a good, good God. And he wants us to know who he is. And he wants us to pray. So the second thing I want us to do, for 10 seconds, I'm just going to be silent. And I want us to sit here and think about our city, the people we love, those who don't know God yet, and start to pray for that. And then after 10 seconds, I'm going to pray for our city, for Queensland, for Australia. And then we'll wrap up in worship. So first, just 10 seconds of silent prayer. you are a good, good father. You love your children. We come before you today and we pray for revival for our city. We pray for revival in our families. We pray for those who don't know you. I pray for hearts that change, minds that are open and ears that hear. God, I pray that we will see this week even hearts changed and questions asked and people drawing closer to you. God, I pray that this city will change and there will be a lighthouse to communities around it, that it will declare the name of God before anything else, that it will declare the name of God before ourselves, God. And I pray that it will be a demonstration of a movement of God. I pray for revival 
in our nation, God. May we be people who are obedient to you and your ways. May there be healing. May there be transformation. May there be rejuvenation where there has been loss, Lord God. And I pray that we will see a move of God in our nation. And Lord, I pray for revival in all of us as well. I pray in our own hearts where we have grown tired and weary that you will again fill us with your love and your mercy and your grace and that you will extend to us the Holy Spirit to burn a fire anew in us that we may seek you out more. Thank you for inviting us in. May we understand what it means to be able to come before you in prayer and seek you out and know you, God. For us all, God, I pray for revival. For our city, God, I pray for revival. For our nation, Lord, revival, that we may declare that you are God. And may we see the impossible become possible. May we see miracles. May we see you move, Lord God, in a most spectacular way. And may there be a heart hungry for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.